0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday night devotional time. We're glad that you've joined us. And we're going to be studying beginning in Ephesians chapter 5 in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll be reading from there in just a moment. Want to take a minute, let everybody uh, get settled in and uh, find the, uh, the live stream and everything. Uh, so I don't want to get started too quick uh, before we can all get settled in. Hope that you're having a good week and uh, thankful that we have this opportunity for us to do some study. In uh, this uh, kind of a different kind of format, a different kind of style, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed being able to do this, uh, even though I'm not enjoying the circumstances that have, uh, have made us do this or forced us into this position. So uh, good to see you tonight. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to begin reading here in Ephesians 5 and verse 3 to introduce what we're going to talk about tonight. Ephesians 5 and verse 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So you can tell that Paul has an issue here he wants to address. He is concerned about sexual immorality and foolishness and impurity, and he kind of thinks through it in a linear way. He's concerned that first it's going to creep into the speech of the Ephesians, and then it's going to creep into their thinking from speech. And from there, from speech to thinking, it will go into action. But I I want to call your attention to how Paul addresses that. He does not just say, don't do this. He challenges them to think about themselves in a new way. He says that in verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what he is saying is... You now are something you didn't used to be. So because you are now children of light, you need to live like children of light. Or as we're going to call it tonight, you need to become who you are. And what I want to do tonight is to think about how Paul reasons this way in several places, and Jesus does as well, that the teaching here is that we have a new identity in Christ and something has happened to us. We've become something different and now we need to live out what that new identity teaches us. So if you'll remember, we have been talking on Wednesday nights this whole month about what you are and how God tells us through different spokesmen that as Christians, we have certain identities and certain ways of thinking of ourselves. So we talked about you are a branch, which focuses on the idea that we're dependent on Jesus. It focuses on how we are to bear fruit and how we need to be pruned. And we talked about how you are a temple, which is a place where God dwells, that you're holy and also that you're a place where worship happens. And then last week we talked about how you are an heir, that is a person who stands to gain great blessing from God, that you have a glorious future to anticipate. And what I want to do tonight is to pursue that line of thinking a little bit farther and to sort of wrap up what we've studied this month and explain the value in thinking this way. See, what is happening in a text like Ephesians 5 is something that Paul does quite frequently. He has a problem to solve. There's a problem in the Ephesian group that he is concerned about, but he doesn't just give a list of instructions, do this and don't do this. He reasons from identity, and he tells people, this is now who you are. Sometimes he'll say things like, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? The temple of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Or he'll say, don't you know that we'll judge angels? And then once he tells them who they are, once he tells them what's been done to them, then he'll come back and explain, so if the temple of the Holy Spirit is your body, then glorify God in your body. Or if you are going to judge angels, then why can't you judge the smallest matters? So what he is saying is that when our actions are rooted in a new identity, we don't have to constantly ask every question about a situation. How do I do this? What needs to be done in this situation or this circumstance? Instead, we have a picture that we can work from. We have an identity that we can build on. And we'll see how that works. We we ask questions like, if I'm an heir of eternal life, how would someone who is an heir of eternal life respond to the coronavirus? And suddenly we have an answer. We know because we have a new identity. Or how would a person who has been forgiven by God respond when somebody says something like that to me? I know because I have been given an identity that now I need to live up to the identity. I need to become who I am. I am that person, but now I need to live like it. So let's think through a few things that this way of reasoning is used in the New Testament. And I think you'll see where we're headed with this and how it can be a blessing to us to think of ourselves in terms of a new identity that we need to now live up to. So the first one is here in our text, uh, become who you are. That is a child of light. So I mentioned already that in Ephesians 5, Paul is concerned about corruption and influences in the church at Ephesus. And so what he says is, Watch out for these things by thinking of yourself as a child of light. Look at verse 7. He says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So he says, you once were darkness, now you're light. Now walk like you are light. And he he explains some of the things that are features of light. There in verse 9. Goodness and righteousness and truth. I think sometimes we would even say that the the Bible adds the picture of purity with the picture of light. But the point is we're no longer in evil. We're no longer in ignorance. We're no longer in the dark. Now we are in God's light, God's righteousness, God's truth. So verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. See, in these engagements with worldly people and worldly ideas, this is the question that we ask. What pleases the Lord? Does this please Jesus? Do these words, these jokes, these actions, these thoughts, these topics, do they make Jesus happy? What is pleasing to the Lord? Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there's a lot going on in this picture of light, particularly in verse 14 that we'll talk about in a moment. But let's just say this, we are light in that we now expose darkness instead of living in it and even joining it. So there is a different relationship we have because we are now children of light to what we used to be. We used to be in darkness. Now we're in light in the Lord. So we now shine the light on others. We know firsthand because we have all experienced evil ourselves that evil grows and gains power in the darkness, in ignorance, in hiding. And so we expose it for the evil that it is and the evil that it does. That is light. And he says, you are now light So expose instead of hiding. Verse 13 and 14 are tough. Verse 13, for when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. I think that the sense here, and and there's a lot of uh, commentators are sort of divided about what's meant and uh, what's the exact picture here. I think essentially it is this, that Christ has shined on us, like he says in verse 14. And because Christ has shined on us, we now not only see the light, but we also become light. To those around us. And we now shine on them. And through us, Christ's glory is reflected onto them. Christ's truth is advanced onto them. His righteousness is shown through us. And so other people get a glimpse of him through us. So what Paul is saying is that's your role now. You are a child of light. So live like it. So now you go back to the the commands. Well, watch out. Verse 3 for sexual immorality and impurity and for foolish talking and crude joking because those are not things that are really about the light. They're instead going to dim who you are and the influence that you have. So because of that, you just need to know this is who you are now. You are a child of light and now you need to live like it. So Paul doesn't legislate everything that we can and can't say or do. He just makes it easier by saying, go live like a child of light would live. Light doesn't compromise with darkness Light doesn't lie, light doesn't share an impurity, light doesn't do harm, so go live like a child of light. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus uses this same logic with the picture of light when he talks about it in Matthew 5. Jesus is also going to tell us to become who we are. So this is a, a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he is primarily talking to his disciples here. And I want to read beginning in verse 14, Matthew five fourteen. He says, you are the light of the world. So notice he starts with a statement of identity. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So he says, this is who you are. You are the light of the world. And he explains what he means by the image of light. He uses two pictures. The first is there in verse uh, 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So you've got a city that everyone can see for miles around. It's up on the hill. Everybody knows it. And they see the light and they're blessed by the light. It has some kind of illuminating function for them. And then in verse 15, he talks about uh, when people have a lamp in a house, they don't hide it. Instead, they put it on a stand so that everybody can benefit from the light. That's who you are. You are a city on a hill. You are a lamp on a stand. You are light to the people around you. So he says everything that is positive about light, the blessing of light, that's who you are. And now you need to, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So live in such a way that other people are gonna be blessed by your light, by your life. Live in such a way that you will be there. City on a hill, their lamp on a stand, you will bless them. Did you notice Jesus doesn't really give us a command here? The only command is let your light shine, which is is figurative. He says he wants people to see our good works. So there's a little bit of some instruction there and glorify our father. But what Jesus is doing and what Paul is doing, by using this picture of this is who you are, now do what someone who is who you are would do, become who you are. What the value of that is, is you don't have to have a long list of commands. Instead, everything is filtered through the lens of our new identity. If I am a child of light or I am the light of the world, should I do this? How would someone who is the light of the world, a city set on a hill, how would they respond in traffic? when somebody cuts you off and pulls over in front of you and you know they shouldn't and they're not driving right and this is not fair. Light of the world. How should I treat this person when they talk that way to me? If I'm the light of the world, if I am a child of light, how should I show kindness in this situation? How should I forgive this person for what they've done to me? You see how it filters out a lot of those questions and suddenly the answer is crystal clear without needing Many words of explication. It just says, be light to the people around you. So you are a child of light. Become who you are. Bring righteousness, bring truth, bring wisdom into every situation you encounter. Bless people, and in so doing, become who you are. The next one I want to look at is in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. So let's talk here about how we are dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, Paul is concerned in Romans 6 that some people are beginning to abuse the grace of God, to live in sin and argue that somehow that's okay because God can forgive them. But that's not just a failure in doctrine. And I want you to notice how Paul addresses it. It's not a failure in doctrine. It's not a failure in behavior. It's a failure in identity. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what's happened to you? Listen to how he addresses this. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's Paul's concern. Someone is saying that by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the main problem Paul addresses as he talks about sin and how we think about sin going forward is that sin and living in sin violates what you are and what happened to you. Specifically, he says, remember when you were baptized. Don't you know what that meant? In verse 2, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's what baptism meant. It was a baptism into death. You died. He says specifically in verse 6, That the old body of sin was brought to nothing, was crucified. Our old self was crucified with him. And then we are buried, verse 4, with him by baptism into death. We are raised to walk in newness of life. So what's the point? I want you to notice in verse 11. Listen to this. In verse 11, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, you've got to think of yourselves as what you are. You are dead to sin and alive to God. So now you need to think of yourself that way. Become who you are. And then, then you start to live like it. If you are dead to sin, some things follow. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So he says, give your bodies over to be instruments of righteousness. Present yourselves to God. Be done with slavery to sin. So Paul is saying, think about your conversion. Something happened there that was more than just you took a bath. It was even more than just you obeyed the commands. Something fundamental changed because you put the old man to death and you buried him and you were raised through the working of God. Now, if that's true, if you died to sin, you need to live like you died to sin. If those things are true, live like they're true. Become... You are. Go with me over to Colossians 3. Colossians 3 takes the same picture and takes it in another direction. Uh, where if we're talking about being dead to sin and alive to God, then what does that mean? What does it look like to now live alive to God? Colossians uh, is a place where Paul uses that same picture of baptism as death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, but in Colossians 3, he's going to reason from that going forward. How do we apply that as we live as baptized people? Colossians 3 and verse 1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ. So let's just take a time out there. Raised with Christ here is talking about how we were raised from baptism back in chapter 2 and verse 12 through faith in the working of God. We were buried and then we were raised. Just like Jesus was raised, we have been raised with Christ. So if that has happened to you and you've been converted, you've been baptized, you've been raised, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. If you were raised with him, if something happened back there, then something needs to happen now that reflects that. Put your treasure there. He is your life. He is your glory. He is your hope. He is your focus. Every Christian has been enslaved to sin and suffered as a result of that. And we came to Jesus to get out of that. And as a result, we underwent a radical transformation. Things happened to us. We made decisions. We submitted our will to God's. God saved us. And now we live out that transformation. Now we say, I am still dead to sin and alive to God. So what do we do when we encounter temptation? We do what a person who is dead to sin and alive to God would do. What do we think about? Well, we set our minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. How do we view our past? Well, we view it with the shame that it deserves, but we also view it with the joy that says that sin is covered by the blood of Christ, and I am dead to it. It is no longer reigning over me. How do we talk to other people? When we see other people in sin, in slavery, how do we engage with them? Are we condescending? Well, of course not. We know that we, but for the grace of God, would be in the same position. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Now we need to live like it. And there are a host of decisions that that identity makes for us. I want to look at one last picture here. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. That when we talk about becoming who we are, I want to talk about the picture here of being one body. So again, Paul has a problem in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is the church in Corinth is fragmented and divided. The thing about that is when a church is fragmented and divided, you can go to people and say, hey, quit, stop. it doesn't really do any good because it doesn't resolve the real issues. It doesn't get to the heart. And so what Paul does, he knows that in order to get the people in Corinth to change, he's going to have to change the way they think. And he does that by reasoning from their identity here's who you are, now let's make some changes to get our lives in line with who we are. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the interesting part about the body picture is that the body has this amazing ability to be two things at once. Our bodies are at once both a functioning unit. We have a body, just one. But at the same time, we have all these parts of the body that we can identify separately and say, well, I have a hand and I have a head, but I also just have one body. So he is saying that's the way Christians are. And he says that specifically in verse 12, so it is with Christ. Many members, one body. That's what it is to be a part of Jesus' body. So what happened there, and he talks about it in verse 13, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. When we became, what we talked about, dead to sin and alive to God, that was not something that was just about our private decision. I made this as an individual and then I did it. Instead, the biblical way of thinking about that is that we then joined every other part of Christ's body. We joined the body and every other Christian we are now in relationship with because we are all one in Christ. So since we are one body, even if we don't always see that, and we wonder, well, why? I don't know, I see lots of bodies. I see lots of fragmentation. No, 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 we are one body. So now we need to become who we are. So how do we do that? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So just as in our own body, there's no part that feels insecure and out of place. There's no part that says, I want to secede from the whole. I don't don't belong here. I want to go out on my own. Our bodies all work together. And that is what Christ made us to be. He says, that's who you are. God arranged the members, and I want you to notice that because he says it in both sections. In verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. So God put us where we are and God has given us what we have and God still wants us to be one body. That is both who we are and what we must become. So there is part of that that says it's about our attitude toward one another and toward ourselves, that we all belong and we all have a place. Verse 21 but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So when you look at your own body, your body does not dismiss parts that seem less important. We treat our whole body with honor because it's all the body. And again, he says, God composed the body and he put everybody where he wanted them to be. And he wants, this is God's goal for the body in composing all of this. What does it mean to say, let's become the one body? Verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So he wants us to care the same. He wants us to work together. So again, Paul's reasoning is helpful because he does not just say, here's a bunch of things you need to stop doing that, start doing this. Instead, he says, you need to think differently about who you are as a group and who you are as an individual. And a whole host of situations are addressed just by the picture that we're all one together. So how do we deal with people in the church that we don't agree with? How do we deal with people that we have personality differences with? How do we deal with a brother who's super quiet? How do we deal with a brother or sister whose spouse doesn't come? How do we deal with the guy with strong opinions about everything? How do we deal with the person who's socially awkward? How do we deal with a person who's socially smooth? How do we deal with the people that we're tempted not to invite? All those questions are answered. By the picture of one body. Because if you just ask the question. If we're one body. How should we treat this brother? If God wants us not to be divided. How should we act? And suddenly. All those questions answer themselves. So become who you are. I've been thinking a lot lately. About uh, local churches. And about unity. And uh, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that we have a flaw in our thinking about local churches and about unity. When Paul talks about peace and unity in the local church, he is not talking about the survival of the local church, uh, like we might be worried about the local branch of the Kiwanis. You know, if, if we don't do something, we're not getting enough recruits and new blood, and so, you know, this branch might shut down. Some Christians uh, are interested in the future and they talk about things in that kind of sociological way. So they'll talk about surveys and population densities and they'll talk about uh, the church is declining. And then there are some who will say, you know, let's join this local church and, you know, we we may not thrive, but we're going to do the best we can. We're going to have a good ride and we'll make a good chapter in this local church's story. And I wonder if that's not a wrong way of, of thinking about and looking at the church. What Paul sees when he talks about the church and and tells us about the church is something far deeper. Paul says that God has planned to save man in this way from before the foundation of the world. And then, in the fullness of time, he sends his son to suffer and die as a sacrifice, offering himself for our sins. He raises him from the dead, he exalts him at his right hand. And then the work begins of gathering all people from all nations and languages into one body, saving them all through the blood of his son, and then eliminating the divisions that had existed between them before. The language divisions, the ethnic divisions, the sociological divisions, even the gender divisions. This is the eternal plan of God, that we would live together in one body and then we come along and in our petty childishness we cut up the body of Christ and we have arguments and splits and feuds and harsh words and sin this is not about this town or this church this is about a holy reality that we just join in we are One body, period. And the question is, will we become who we know we are? Are we going to treat one another the way we would treat one another were we one body? Because we are. So I hope you get my point. That when we are told who we are, that is both information, it's interesting and helpful, but it is also a challenge. Because we are going to have to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We're going to have to become the people God has told us we are. He has made us children of light. He has made us dead to sin and alive to him. He has made us one body. And now the burden rests with us. But when our actions are rooted in a new identity, there is value in this because God doesn't have to tell us here is every single situation and circumstance and how you have to act Instead, it's a lot like being instructed by principle. Here is a principle, now live it out. And so he gives us the opportunity to fill in the blanks with everyday situations and everyday behaviors. How would a person who is dead to sin respond to this? If we're both part of Jesus' body, how should I treat my brother in this situation? So what I want you to see is that God has blessed us so richly and he has made us what we could never be on our own so let's live like it would you pray with me about that and we'll be done with our time for tonight our God and Father in heaven we thank you so much Uh, Father we are in awe of the mercy and the love that you've shown to us we are so unworthy of your attention so unworthy of your your grace and yet Father you shower us with blessings We're thankful for this month that we have had to think about and look at these uh, things that you tell us about ourselves, the, the realities that we need to embrace, the hope that we have for the future, the need that we have for you. And Father, I pray that you will help us as we try to live out these vital truths in our lives, that you will teach us and guide us and help us to know how we should act the things that we should stay away from, and the things that we should pursue, the way we should treat others and the way we should not treat others. And give us a heart of wisdom, Father, to discern what's pleasing to Jesus. Father, we pray for this local church. We pray that you'll help us as we try to work together, as we try to get along, as we try to promote peace, and as we try to spread the gospel. Help us, Father, to remember that part of our call is that we are one in Christ. And so we urge others to become one in Christ with us as they're reconciled to you. Father, I pray your blessings on those who are making decisions in this difficult time. And I pray that you'll give them wisdom, give them compassion for those that they lead. And help us, Father, as we respond to these things, not to be angry with one another, but to understand the difficulty of these times and these positions, and to be patient with one another and with those who lead us. Father, we ask your blessing on those who are sick, on those who are recovering from surgeries, on those who are grieving. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to comfort all of us and give us the strength we need for the tasks that we have for the day. Take care of us tonight, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.